He says in verse 8, Since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. There you go. That's what you do, Thessalonians. That's what you do, Bridge Fellowship. You put on the breastplate of faith and love. Well, now, that's a contradiction of Scripture, because I happen to know that in Ephesians chapter 6, it's the breastplate of righteousness. So Paul's obviously confusing himself. First of all, he wrote Ephesians chapter 6 about a dozen years after this. But secondly, the breastplate of faith and love and the breastplate of righteousness are the same thing. That righteousness is expressed in faith and love. That's what it really is. To be right with God is to be a person who trusts in God and who loves like God. That's righteousness. So we have a beautiful description of what righteousness is. Put on that breastplate. Trusting the Lord. Man, that'll keep you protected. That'll keep your heart. Trust in Him. Have faith in Him. And love people. And that will keep your heart protected and strong. And then put on, I love how he says this, put on as a helmet the hope of salvation. Now in Ephesians 6 he just says, put on the helmet of salvation. But it's the same thing. The hope of salvation. Why is it a helmet? Because it protects my mind. It guards my thoughts. We talked a lot about hope on Sunday morning. The thing with feathers that perches on the soul. That hopefulness of our salvation. That hopefulness that when the time comes we will be called out. And when you put on that hope of salvation, it protects the thought life. It keeps your thoughts pure. Because you know it can happen at any moment. It keeps your soul from fretting because you've got your salvation. If you know you're saved, what can this world do to you? Wear that helmet. Put on the breastplate. Now, is, is Paul then exhorting in this letter, and especially in this section, is he exhorting the Thessalonians to get their act together Is he saying, Thessalonians, you've got to live this way. Come on, guys. This this thought struck me as I was studying through this, how easy it is in preaching and teaching to be exhortational, which is a church word for getting on people's cases. I exhort you, brethren, get it together. And it's easy to start pounding the pulpit, you know, and saying, this is what we've got to do. We've got to put on the breastplate and we've got to wear the helmet. Man, and shod your feet with the gospel of peace, you know. And you start to really get wrapped up in it. And I can do that. I know. I know. It's real easy to preach at people. Is that what Paul's doing here? Is he getting on to them? Is he going after them? That is not the intent of the passage. I had to kind of readjust my thinking. He's not getting after them. Paul isn't urging, he's encouraging. Another way to say encourage is comfort. He's comforting. What is he saying to them? You got your salvation. Wear it. You got that hope. You have faith and love. I see it in you, Thessalonians. Man, love God. You've got faith. This is not for you. All this day of the Lord stuff that you're worried about is not for you. What he is sharing with them, he's not saying, I want you to to live uptightly. What he's doing is praising them for living uprightly. You're already saved. 
You are already sons of day. The intent of the passage, therefore, is not exhortation, it's affirmation. And the reason why that's important is Paul is not handing out a set of keys to cope. What he's doing is encouraging them with the fruit of hope. The thing with wings. The thing with feathers that perches on the soul. He's laying out hope before them. That's what what all of chapter 4 is about. And you know chapter 5, the steadfastness of hope. And that's what Paul is into. And then he says this, and note it, it's critically important. Verse 9, for God has not destined us for wrath. That sounds pretty all-encompassing, doesn't it? He has not destined us for wrath. The mid-tribulationist view says, yeah, but we'll go halfway in. But he hasn't destined us for wrath. The mid-tribulationists will say, and I'll probably repeat this on Sunday, they'll say, yeah, but the, the great tribulation, God's outpouring of wrath, really is the last three and a half years of the seven. And they're right. So what happens in the first three and a half years? If you go to Revelation chapter 6 and look at the last verse, the people on earth call it the wrath of the Lamb. God has not destined us for wrath, which clearly means any wrath that would come from either the Lamb or God Himself. He has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake, that is alive at the time, or asleep, that is having already died, we will live together with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are doing. And here's the thing. We don't build each other up by declaring who we should be. We build each other up by declaring who we are. You are in Christ Jesus. You are sons and daughters of day and of light. You are a saved people. Now, doesn't that encourage you more than me saying, Chris, get it together. Because you almost out of time. Do this, that, and the other. I mean, you go out and they're going, okay, i got to do these things and I'm a little stressed. As opposed to, Chris, daughter of the King, you are saved. Hallelujah. And doesn't that feel a little better to you? And for me, I know it is far more motivational to know I am among the saved. I am a saint of God. I am a person filled with the steadfastness of hope. Steadfastness of hope. I I love that because it's a hope that just doesn't go away. It does not waver. It does not wane. It's there, man. The hope that we have. And Romans 5, verse 5, Paul says, And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Hey, the wrath of God is about to be poured out on this world. But if you know Jesus, the love of God has already been poured out in your heart. And that is how we live. What is the one thing that the Holy Spirit gives us more than any other thing? It is the certainty that we will live together with Jesus. It's the seal of our salvation. It's the very hope that we have been given in Christ. Now, Paul begins to close out the letter and he does so with seven what I like to call staccato admonitions. That is, quick kind of bullet encouragements, little things that just you're already feeling good about your salvation, you know you're saved, grace has got you, now here are some things you can do to walk that out and experience that. And he says in verse 12, But we request of you, brethren, 
that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. I like that verse. (laughs) Esteem those who labor among you, who serve among you. Appreciate them. To appreciate them is to esteem and, 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 and to, to know them. Actually, appreciate is to know, is the word there. So when he says that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you, he's saying know them. Be aware of those who are serving. Be aware of those who are laboring among you. And, and then when he says, and that you esteem them, the word esteem is literally regard. Regard them. How? Very highly in love because of their work. Get this. How do you esteem someone who is laboring among you? How do you esteem a fellow a fellow servant of the Lord who is serving in a fellowship of believers? How do you do that? Love them. Just love them. Esteem them highly, he says, in love. That's really all they need. Don't worship them. Esteem is not worship. You know that? That esteem. God highly esteemed Daniel. Daniel chapter 9. Gabriel comes down to give answer to Daniel's cries and Daniel's prayers. And man, Gabriel calls Daniel, oh, highly esteemed. He's not worshipped. He's esteemed. He's regarded. He is uh, loved by God. So don't, don't worship in a church setting pastors or, or fellow workers. Don't worship them. Don't idolize them. Don't venerate them. And on the other hand, don't despise them or be disappointed by them either. Just love them. Does it sound self-serving? I really don't mean it to. I'm just reading what Paul is saying. That what any servant of Christ needs more than anything else is just to be loved. Isn't that what we all need? That we love one another as Christ first loved us. And by the way, i got to add this, don't ever love or honor or esteem or regard anyone because of their rank. Or because they hold some kind of position. Love them because of their labor. Love them because of what they do. Not because of what they're called. In fact, Jesus said... Don't call anyone rabbi. You already have one. So don't call, call anyone father either because you already have a father. And just, just love each other. And that's what Paul's getting at here. And Jesus said, Mark 9.35, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Note to leaders and teachers. And know this, perhaps you're not a leader now, but you will be. Honor and esteem is never yours by right or position. Don't claim that. There are a few things that bother me more, and there are a handful of things that bother me in church work. One of them is a pastor who must be called pastor. Or a reverend who wants to be called reverend. I've earned the title, I have the degrees, call me by that. Well, great. That's not what makes you a pastor or a shepherd. What makes a shepherd a shepherd? He smells like sheep. He's out there cleaning up the messes in the field. He's making sure the sheep are fed. He's with sheep. He loves sheep. He hangs out with sheep. He'd rather be with the sheep than home with his wife and kids. I mean, it's a little weird. 
I'd actually rather be with my wife and kids, no offense. But the shepherd is just a doer who serves. And remember, the lowest rung on the ladder in Jewish society was the shepherd. That, to me, is the greatest title that we can give anybody. Hey, shepherd, stinky. If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all. And note, I love that Paul adds at the end of this little section on appreciating those who labor among you, live in peace with one another. And that's important because, my friends, division in churches always, always involves leadership. When a leadership becomes divided, churches divide. When a leadership becomes contentious, churches become contentious. When a leadership begins to kick begins to kick back or begins to lord it over or do any of these things, man, appreciate and esteem the laborers and encourage all of us. Let's encourage one another. Let's love each other. We are co-laborers for Jesus Christ. We all have roles. We all have positions. We all have a place of importance in the kingdom. Every last one of us. And I think Jesus would say the most important person is the one who's vacuuming after Sunday morning or sweeping up or quietly serving and nobody knows they're doing it. That's the kind of person Jesus says, Hey, angels, look at this guy. Check it. He's cleaning the bathroom. You know who's going to find out? Nobody. He's just doing it for me. And that's what Jesus is looking for. Man, live in peace with one another. Love each other. It's so simple. Verse 14 He says, we urge you then, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Well, frankly, the unruly are a pain, the faint-hearted are lame, and the weak I don't have any use for. No. When he lays this out, (laughs) the unruly specifically are those who are out of order. What do you do with those who are out of order? Kick them out? No, admonish them. Someone's countering you. Someone's causing trouble in your small group, in your in your Bible study, in your fellowship. Someone's cantankerous. They're unruly. What do you do? Love them. Admonish them. Encourage them. Encourage the faint-hearted. Well, the faint-hearted, literally that's the feeble-minded. And these are the people who just don't get it. You've talked to them, and they don't get it. So what do you do with them? I'm through with you because you're so lame. You're just stupid. Feeble-minded. I love the phrase feeble-minded. I don't think we use it enough. (laughs) Oh, you Christian, you feeble-minded. The idea of the feeble-minded, this is someone who really seriously does not understand. So what do you do with the person who doesn't get it, doesn't understand? Well, you hang with them. You encourage them. You continue to disciple them. You'll love them. And what about... What's the next one? Feeble-minded and the unruly and the weak. The weak? i got to put up with the weak too? The weak can be anyone who is physically sick, struggling with physical infirmity. They could be mentally exhausted, spiritually frail? What do you do with these people who are weak for one reason or another? You help them. Oh, once again, you love them. See how love is just kind of the instruction for all of this? And then he adds, 
seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. So he adds for all people. So really no one's left out of this. Just in case we missed anyone in the fellowship, love them too. Love them too. Care for the body of Christ. There's a great picture of this. You know, when Paul's talking about all of the Thessalonian believers, he's saying, here's what I want you to do if you've got an unruly person, a feeble-minded person, a weak person, and everyone just loves. Love, love, love. Care for everybody. Care for the body. And when I hear the phrase body of Christ, I almost always mentally go to the body of Christ. And I see Joseph of Arimathea. And I see Nicodemus, who are both secret followers of Jesus. And I see them going to Pilate and asking for the body of Christ. I see them taking the body of Christ down from the cross lovingly, gently, carefully, bringing the body to a place where they can apply all of the linen wrappings and the, and the aloes and the, the different spices for the burial custom and laying Him in the new tomb that had never been used by anyone. Gently and lovingly, we see Joseph and Nicodemus caring for the body of Christ. How unique, how special. Two men in all of history who got to love Jesus in that way. But so can you. And so can I. We can care for the body of Christ when we love each other as Paul is describing right here. Verse 15, then he says, See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Then he says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, note this, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. What's God's will for my life? I want to know God's will for my life. What's His will for my life? Well, according to Scripture, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks. That's it. You now know the secret. God's will for your life. Rejoice. Pray. Be thankful. Well, that's not hardly specific enough. Listen, if you will do these things, if I will rejoice, pray, and be grateful, God will take care of the rest. He'll cover it. I think about the old Keith Green song. Some of you remember, he'll take care of the rest. Let me just read you this verse. He's saying, you just think about Noah toting his umbrella when there wasn't a cloud in the sky. All his neighbors would laugh at his pet giraffe and they'd snicker as he passed by. But the Lord said, hey Noah, be cool. Just keep building that boat. It's just a matter of time till we see who's going to float. You just keep doing your best. Pray that it's blessed and I'll take care of the rest. I'm the weatherman. <laughs> it's a great song. And it's a great truism. You want to know God's will? Rejoice. Man, just be joyful. Pray constantly and be thankful in all those things. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. When joy and prayer are married, their firstborn child is gratitude. Isn't that great? When joy and prayer are married, their firstborn is gratitude. Verse 19, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. How can there even be an arm of believers in the church who call themselves cessationist? I don't know. I was part of that arm for many years. Cessationist that that the Holy Spirit ceased to actively work in the lives of believers after the last of the apostles. 
How can you believe that and read Paul's admonition, do not quench the Spirit and do not despise the prophetia, prophetic utterances, the prophetic. How does one quench the Spirit of God? Well, it's very simple. Deny Him and and you quench the work. So you can do that. And people do. People believe in Jesus, but quench the work of the Spirit in their lives because they deny that He will work in their lives. And you know what? Do you like to be around people who deny you? People who ignore you? People who want nothing to do with you? You sit down at the lunch table and everybody turns their back? Is that the kind of group you want to be? I mean, how do you think the Spirit feels when people say, You don't exist. You don't have any impact or influence or power in my life. The word quench in the Greek means to stifle. Do not stifle the Spirit. Don't suppress the Spirit. How about that? Do you like to be around people who suppress you? Every time you want to share a thought, they interrupt. You know, they're the me monsters. They're the ones constantly talking. They cut you off. They refuse your help. They don't want your comfort. Eventually, what you will do, what I would do, is move on to someone who wants me around. Don't quench the Spirit. Paul said in Ephesians 4.30, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for your day of redemption. And all the way back in Isaiah, an important passage, Isaiah 63, verse 9, talking about God the Father, talking about the Spirit of the Lord, he says, In all their affliction, He was afflicted. And the angel of His presence saved them. In His love, in His mercy, He redeemed them. He lifted them. He carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved His Holy Spirit. Therefore, He turned Himself to become their enemy and He fought against them. And that's the choice. You want to deny the Spirit of God? Ultimately, what we saw with Israel is the Spirit of God rejected and denied. He turned and said, All right, then I will be against you because you have set yourself against me. Verses 19 through 22 here are what I believe are the perfect spiritual balance. The right response to the work of the Holy Spirit of the living God. That we accept Him, that we trust Him, that we invite and allow Him to do His perfect work in and through us. And if you're ever uncomfortable with the Holy Spirit, recognize that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. Show of hands, how many of you know Jesus? Okay, how many of you, uh, show of hands again, you can put your hands down and put them back up if you want. We'll just get a little action here. How many of you feel comfortable with who Jesus is? Good, okay. How many of you, when you read about Jesus, you feel safe and secure? You should feel the exact same way about the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is His Spirit. We're talking about Jesus here. Do you understand that? And this question keeps coming up. It's been interesting lately. I keep getting texts and emails about the Holy Spirit. Well, is it okay if the Holy Spirit does this? And I say, well, does Jesus do that? Yeah. Well, then yeah. It's the Holy Spirit. Throughout the book of Acts, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of the Lord. Same Spirit. So if you know and understand and trust Jesus, why do you fear His Spirit? If indeed you do. Because the Holy Spirit is His Spirit. And He's not going to do something just to freak you out. He may make you uncomfortable. Jesus has done that plenty of times in my life. Made me uncomfortable. Done something, I'm like, oh, okay. Guess we'll do it your way, Lord. 
like last week when I got home and Cheryl told me, you know, you taught yourself into a corner again. You know, I was talking about the things that we watch on TV and shows that we shouldn't be watching and being paying attention to. You know, we got home and I said, hey, what do you want to watch tonight? She said, oh, I don't know what we can watch. <laughs> She's funny. Psalm 51, verse 11. David said it. I said it last week. I will say it again. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. I want the Spirit of Christ in my life. I want to hear God. I want to know God. I want the intimacy we were praying about earlier. I want that intimacy with God. That comes at a spirit level by the Spirit of Christ in you and through you and upon you. And any way that I can draw nearer to God, I want to do so. Doesn't mean I'm going to be some kind of weirdo. And as a matter of fact, if you ask the question, how can I be sure it's really Him? Look at verse 21. Examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Simple. We have this wonderful litmus test of all Holy Spirit activity. It's very simple to know exactly what's going on. And the litmus litmus test is the Word of God. You can test everything you see the Spirit doing by the Word of God. Does it jive with Scripture? It's the Spirit. Is it opposed to or counter to Scripture? Not the Spirit of God. Because God will not contradict Himself. He will work in you as we have seen Him work, as we understand Him work. And you get out beyond that, that's where you start to get a little weird, a little strange. And by the way, again, He says, abstain from every form of evil. Listen, some so-called spiritual behavior that some would even claim to be of the Spirit can appear pagan, can appear heathenistic. Don't do it. Don't do it if it has a pagan ring to it or or a strange uh, sense to it. But if it's Jesus, if it's biblical, if it's the Spirit of the Lord, man, do it. Engage in that. Be involved in it. Verse 23, Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you entirely, and then He explains it, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus. Spirit, soul, and body. And right there is your biblical explanation of all of our triune nature. I've talked about this, but now you can see it literally right in front of your eyes that every one of us have a spirit, a soul, and a body. The spirit is who we are. The soul is the seat of reason and the body is the physical self. And all of that makes up who we are. And I love that Paul says, may he sanctify you entirely. Don't just be satisfied with God sanctifying your spirit. Let him sanctify your mind as well. And don't just be satisfied with spirit and mind. Invite God to sanctify your body. What does that mean? I don't know. You talk to him about that. Do you need to be sexually sanctified, as we talked about last week, purified physically in in sexual morality and purity? Do you need to be sanctified physically uh, simply in in terms of of health, in terms of of lifestyle? You know, it's great. People talk about all the different diets out there. Invite God to be your diet. Invite God to sanctify the body. You say, what am I doing with this body If my body is the temple of the Lord and home to the Holy Spirit, what do I want to do with this that He's given me? 
And I laugh and joke all the time about the fact that this bad boy is breaking down, and it is. But I can't help that. I, I'm living in a fallen, corrupt world. But I can say, I can do everything I can, you know, both physically as well as mentally and spiritually, because I want to be sanctified entirely, all of me, spirit, soul, and body made complete. And by the way, followers of Jesus, affirmation. You will be sanctified entirely, spirit, soul, and body at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So in the rapture of the church, where none of us are going to get it down perfect. All of us are going to have flaws and foibles and issues and pop-tarts in our life that will keep us from being quite as sanctified as perhaps we would like to be otherwise. Guess what? You will be sanctified. Entirely. Every aspect of who you are when we are caught up. And it's going to be marvelous. Well, Paul keeps that steely-eyed focus, doesn't he, on Christ's coming. And in verse 24, he says this, Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Bring what to pass? The coming of Christ, the rapture of the church. He's going to bring it to pass faithfully. The day of the Lord. He will bring it to pass. He said he would. His glorious appearing, his kingdom, all of it. He's going to do it because He said He's going to do it. And 1 Corinthians 1.8, Paul said, He will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul told Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.13, If we are faithless, He is faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. So when Paul here says, Faithful is He who calls you, that's God's nature. He cannot not be faithful. He must be faithful to everything that He promised. And so we can know that the return of the Lord to rapture His people home is as certain as the faithfulness of God Himself. Will the rapture happen? You bet it will. How do I know? Because He's faithful. That's who He is. He said He'll do it. He will do it. And we're almost done, but i got to ask you this question. Do you think... Do you think that Paul, who was so focused on the coming of the Lord, who lived with so much that attitude of imminency, God is coming, Jesus is coming at any moment, I've got to live that way. Do you think that Paul wishes now that he hadn't lived that way then? Do you think Paul is disappointed that, wow, I spent my whole life waiting for Jesus and I died with my head cut off? Wish I'd partied a little harder. You know, wish I'd taken a little, you know, more license with my freedom in Christ. No, not at all. Believing Jesus would return at any moment defined the life of Paul. It it, it led him, it drove him, it filled him, it was everything to him. And some 18 years after writing this, Paul would realize that he was about to die. That kind of hit me this week. The apostle who broke open the reality of the rapture for us to fully understand and hear it described himself came to that moment in his life when he realized, I'm not going to be raptured. I'm going to die. I'm going to depart. I will not be caught up. Not not caught up alive. I mean, Paul knew he was going to be raptured. Okay, so don't get me wrong. He knew, but Paul is among the dead in Christ who will rise first. Paul who so longed to be caught up right out of this world. 
Listen to what he said. To Timothy, 2 Timothy 4.6, I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I think that was hard for Paul to write. Man, I thought I was going to go, Lord. I thought you were coming. But now I'm next in line to be executed here in Rome. Timothy, the time of my departure has come. But what was Paul's sense at that moment? I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. And that kind of life of expectancy, my, my friends, that's how you fight and finish with faith. Is you persevere, knowing Jesus could come at any moment. And it doesn't matter if you knew that 2,000 years ago or you know that right now. Here I am at 52. We started this church 14 years ago nearly. And in those 14 years, every day I thought, today could be it, today could be it, today could be it. Sometimes it's a little tiring to say, today could be it. There are times in my life where I've gone... Today could be it. I really thought it was going to be yesterday. Or last year. I pray that to the very end of my days, if Jesus doesn't come and I depart like Paul did, I pray to the end of my days that every single day I live believing that that could be the day. Because that kind of perseverance brings us through the entire race and makes us victorious in Jesus Christ. Brethren, he says, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. We had a greeting time on Sunday, second service, and not everybody liked it. I understand that. I don't like contrived greeting. Turn around and give someone a high five and kick them in the shins. You know, I mean, when pastor tell you to do something, you know, we got to do that now. I've got to move out of my seat. got to be uncomfortable. And I get that. I, when I'm sitting down in a church and they tell me to do it, I'm a rebel, man. I just don't. <laughs> Say hi to someone around you. Uh-oh. <laughs> just be glad no one's asking you to greet each other with a holy kiss. Okay? <laughs> Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. We've talked about it. It's that Middle Eastern kiss. It's the show of affection. And typically it's between a couple of big hairy Arab men. So you big hairy Arab men, if you want to greet each other with a holy kiss, that's fine. Just don't greet the young women that way. Okay? Let's be clear on that. Greet all the brethren, literally we could say with affection. I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren, and we've done it. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. I always wonder when we finish a letter, and Rachel, you can come on up. When we finish a letter, I always wonder how the recipients felt when they finished reading it. How did the Thessalonians feel when they got to the end of the scroll? I mean, did they go right back to the beginning and go, we got to hear this one again? Let's do that. No. How did they feel? And you know what the reality is? I always feel such a deep satisfaction as can only come by the Spirit of the living God through the living Word of God. This deep peace and satisfaction because I'm reminded that our faithful Lord is faithfully going to do all of this. He will see it through to the very end. Father, thank You for for Your love and Your faithfulness. Thank You, Lord, for expressing Yourself to us in such a way that we can be confident and steadfast in our hope. That our salvation is the thing. And that these words of affirmation, that we are sons of light and sons of day, we're like-minded in this. That we get to be among the saved. 
Father, this affirmation causes us to look at all these other things and these encouragements from Paul and even the exhortations and we say, man, that just doesn't sound like a burden anymore. Sounds like joy. Sounds like peace. Oh, Father, help us to walk with the joy of our salvation. And for those who have lost it, restore it to us. And don't take your Holy Spirit from us. Fill us up, Lord, with the Spirit of Jesus, with the awareness of your presence and that deep intimacy and that joyful relationship. And Father, for all the things that we read about and study and can understand that are coming as prophetically revealed in the Scriptures, may we be first and foremost eyes wide open to the calling of Jesus. May we be looking for and hastening the blessed hope that we will be with you. Keep us focused on that until you call us home. Thank you, Lord, for your word to us. In Jesus' name, amen.